0: Welcome to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times. Joining me today is indeed an extraordinary woman. She's an ice hockey Olympic and world champion. In fact, she took part in four Olympic games and won medals in all of them. In the professional rank, she became the first woman player in a North American professional league. Away from the field of play, she's a graduate of the Harvard Business School and now in the entrepreneurial hot seat as CEO of the Sports Innovation Lab. But back to the rink, where she was named the US Olympic Committee's Player of the Year and later became only the fourth woman and second American woman to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. She served on the executive board of the International Olympic Committee after being elected chair of the committee's Athletes Commission. A steadfast and unflinching champion of women's sport, her career off the ice has maintained the highest level of commitment to sport and the welfare of athletes. I'm delighted to welcome a true American hero, Angela Ruggiero. Angela, you're very welcome.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to to connect and uh, and you know it's an honor to, uh, to to have this interview with you, Seb.
0: Well, Angela, I'm I'm delighted you found some time. Um, and look, I could have probably spent the majority of this podcast just running through your CV and I can't remember who it was that once said to me that of course we only ever reach perfection on our CVs but frankly your CV is just jaw-dropping from field of play uh, to boardroom but but there is something I'd like just to sort of tease out at the beginning I like beginnings in, in these podcasts I'm always fascinated by the things that I guess in our formative years shape the lives that we go on to lead and you know we we know the central pillars their family their friendships their geography their landscape uh, and and often their education and i can see some continuity some similarities all the way through those but i do have to ask you about landscape because what on earth does a girl from the san fernando valley end up in ice hockey <laughs>
1: Everyone asks me that. I, I actually hate the cold weather. I'm not original,
0: Angela. You'll know, you'll see that.
1: <laughs> no, I, I live in Boston now, and um and you know I always complain when winter comes, and people say, "Well, you're a hockey player. Of course you love the cold." I said, "No, I grew up in Los Angeles. I love the sun." Uh, so naturally, people scratch their heads. Um, my father actually grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Played hockey as a youngster. Got my brother, signed up. My sister signed up um, when we were 6, 7, and 8. Um, so,
0: But your brother turned pro?
1: Yeah, my brother was a goalie. He played uh, pro. My sister uh, only played two years, but uh, but for two years, we were the three of us on the same hockey team and fell in love with the, the sport at a very young age. Uh,
0: yeah, look, that answers the first question. The second question, though, <laughs> is <laughs> you must have been pretty conscious even as a young girl, and, and I, I, I recognize... Parental interest and, and familial support here, but you must have recognized as a young girl that you'd sort of entered a sport that was very much a male preserve.
1: Yeah, even as a seven year old, um, having my sister on the team was great. Um, but after she stopped, I, I actually became the only girl in the entire state playing in my age. So I was not only the only girl on my boys' team, I was the only girl period, um, played against boys growing up once a year. In fact, I go to Colorado and there was one other girl on one of the teams that I would, you know, periodically face off against. That was always very exciting, <laughs> but, um, no, I, I, I learned, I learned about, you know, gender at a very young age. Uh, one of the formative events of, of my childhood was, uh, when I was nine, I got left off of a, um, a, a team because it was a girl. They didn't want, you know, they didn't want me on the team, the parents, at least the boys' parents. Uh, And uh, my brother and my dad got to go to Canada, left me at home. And I was probably the third or fourth best player on the ice. Um, But my dad said, you can, you can quit, prove them right. Or you could be the best player next year, Angela, and they have to take you and prove them wrong. And that again, set the stage, I think for a lot of how I approached um, anything, Uh, it, it was such a great lesson and thankfully obviously my my family supported me but yeah i absolutely knew i was the only girl <laughs> it, it's it's
0: it, it's an interesting it, this is an interesting one for me because it, not that long ago i was in conversation with billie jean king i think we must have been sharing a you know a hospitality box i think it was at wimbledon and she was telling me that it was the kickback and the adversity uh, and in her case, it was being told she couldn't join the local tennis club, but she refused to wear a skirt. She wanted to play in shorts uh, and disappeared off. And actually, I think for a time, ended up playing baseball and then came back to tennis. But it was that moment that made her, you know, fight particularly for equity in, in the women's game.
1: Yeah. she And she's one of my uh, consider a good friend. She started the Women's Sports Foundation. I was the president there for two years learned so much from her um, and her partner Alana and that just like what they've been able to do in sports because of feeling that at a young age, obviously, and then wanting to make it better for those that came after her. And again, at first it was about Angela. I think, Hey, how do I prove myself on the ice? How do I make this team? It certainly gave me focus and intent, um, you know, allowing me to make the national team at a, at a, at a very young age. But now it's exactly what, what Billy, uh, I'm sure, expressed to you, which was like, how do you make this better? How do you change the table so that others that come after you, in particular, young girls, but also young boys that need to see, you know, I think role models of both genders. Um, uh, you know, how do you just change the dynamic of sport so that it's open and inclusive for everyone? And, and having that that experience as a young person, um, I think, shaped my view of sport and why I'm still in sports, even after I'm done playing.
0: But look, you, you, you navigated four Olympic games mm-hmm. uh, and I guess that, that gave you sort of access and, and you know, absorption to all sorts of influences in the game and, and particularly international. But, um, but it strikes me that the big moment, and you may disagree with this, but the big moment was actually breaking into a, a male league. Uh, in the US. Uh but uh, as I go through your CV at each and every stage in your career whether it's on the field of play or in the council chamber or even in the boardroom at, at commercial level it seems that you have grown in every in every background in every environment that you've sort of absorbed these lessons and used them to to understand the next step of the way and to certainly be even more resilient am i right in thinking that uh
1: no i think i just i love i love a good challenge um i love uh you know pushing myself you know i played in four olympics and and one thing i you know i always think back on is like how do i get better each and every games what are the little things that i that will allow me to improve and not just make the team but have an impact on the team. And so as I, you know, proceed outside of sports, whether it's academics or business, that's my approach to everything is just that growth mindset. I'm naturally curious and, uh, and, you know, I learned so many lessons again, as an athlete that I'm applying now, again, whether it's the boardroom, my company, you know, anything that I do that I'm, you know, again, why I'm such a big advocate for, for sports, you know, you, you, you learn setting goals and, being on time and you know, all the things that we need to do to be, I think, successful in in anything. So uh, you know, definitely credit my athletic experience to giving me that exposure. Um, but yeah, I just love, you know, I love I'm I'm very interested in people and in companies and, and almost anything. So when I'm involved in something, I love just throwing myself into it. It's interesting. It is. It is. You're it's the interesting same way, way though. I
0: yeah, I I guess to a certain extent, and it, it's interesting because some of the things that you've just talked about, the, the great attributes, the great things you do absorb from sport, you know, the goal setting. I mean, j- the simple thing of, of just being on time for training sessions. But actually, they're not complicated, are they? These are just bedrock influences that if you absorb them through sport, you sort of hold on to them for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah. And I remember um, the, 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 you know, kind of the intangibles is I think what you can learn in sport and apply outside of sport, you know, working in a team being, you know, again, uh, getting up when you fail, you know, there's just all these intangibles. Um, and I think I realized at a younger age also that, um, cause I was very lucky. I won a gold medal when I was 18. Um, I was surrounded around, you know, I was the youngest player on that team in 98 first time women's hockey was in the Olympics. That was Nagano, wasn't it? Yep. Nagano, uh, we were the underdogs. We we took the gold medal home, and and I got to learn from my teammates. They're basically a team of older sisters, and what it takes to succeed, and how to train, and uh, I was just absorbing everything. And uh, and I remember when I was at uh, in undergrad at Harvard, I was incredibly intimidated when I applied there, and I had the I had the lowest expectations for myself. I you know I I think freshman year I'm like I just want to get C's. Like, I didn't want to fail out because <laughs> I was so intimidated. And then I realized, wow, if I just use the same principles in sport, which is like set a goal, work backwards, you know, all the all the things I learned in sport, if I just applied it to my academics, I could actually do better. Because I, I was self-limiting myself by saying Cs. Like, that's embarrassing now. But it's the truth. I was intimidated. And, and by the time I was a senior, I was getting straight A's because I just said – well if I just take the, again the same approach I took to hockey it's going to be hard it's not easy you got to work you got to show up you know you got to put your time in obviously but um but don't limit yourself by your mind and again i and i just it kind of clicked got everything i'd learned in sports if i just apply it to other areas in my life um but, it's, but not, it's just, not that complicated no
0: it isn't and you've just wonderfully articulated the strongest case i think we have for sport and that is that so often young people through sport will find their self-esteem, they will find a purpose, and they will suddenly get to the point often in their academic careers where they think, well, if I can strategically figure my way through an ice hockey game or, uh, you know, the street smarts to to run an 800, which is is quite complicated, or the focus shot by shot over four hours in a, a tennis match, I can figure out calculus. I can figure out physics. I can, you know, and any physical education teacher will tell you that actually sport for so many that go on to achieve is the, you know, it's the gateway to unlocking so many other things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, again, why I love, why I'm still in this industry, um, want it to flourish and, you know, have the access for everyone uh, because again, it's, if sport is that ultimate um, playground to learn about yourself, learn about society, figure out your way through the world, and by the way, you 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 lose a game, you lose a meet, it's not the end of the world, you know. Like you you learn more about yourself when you fail, right? You can get in in a safe environment. Sport is again this like I feel like a playground. To, it's a very safe playground to learn about life and those lessons. And I'm sure we've all had great coaches and teachers and parents and people that support you um, can help you actually see those lessons. Sometimes you can see them in yourself, but other times someone point them out. Give me, give me one of those lessons. I'd be fascinated.
0: A match or an incident or a coaching environment.
1: Um, I mean, there's a, there's tons of them. Uh, the, the lesson that I mentioned my father gave me, uh, you can prove them right or prove them wrong. I talk about that. I, I, uh, I think of my coach at Harvard, Katie Stone, um, her whole motto is team first. Um, that we literally had it on our, our mirror in the, in the, in the locker room. It, you know, it was just, it was embedded in us. So you're, you're playing a role, right? And sometimes you like the, your starting lineup and sometimes you're the backup goalie doesn't really matter. Um, and we all play our roles in in business now in life. Um, and sometimes you get to score the game winning goal and other times you, you have to cheer on others. Uh, and so again, why I love the role that I play now is, is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the captain, if you will, of my company, but I can see everyone's roles and maybe they're not the starting lineup per se, but everyone plays a, a part in collective success. Um, you know, one, one lesson I, again, I credit my dad with a lot. He, he was so great in hockey in California. You got to, you have to drive lots of miles. (laughs) So you're constantly in the car. And my dad was constantly giving us like, isn't it? That's
0: the big, ice hockey area. area. Yeah. El
1: Segundo had one Simi Valley's right where Mm. I spent a lot of time growing up, but they didn't have a rink at the time. So we had to play in Pasadena. And anyway, it's just, I knew the whole state, if you will, being in a car, but, uh, He, you know, I remember my dad pointed um the quote by Henry Ford, whether you think you can or you can't, you're probably right. I just love that quote. It's like it's like life defining. Um, you know, we all set internal limits on ourselves. And um again, uh another great one, again, I had the last one, again, my dad um he said, pretend you're a pretend when you're out on the ice that there's a scout in the stands. Uh, what do you mean by that, dad? He's like, well, look, if, if people are watching you and evaluating you and you approach every practice, every game as if you're getting evaluated, you're going to be first in line. You're going to be first on the ice. You're going to like hustle off when it's you know your shift is over. You're going to do all the little things. So act as if someone's watching you, basically. So either you're going to get more out of practice, and when you actually are being evaluated for the Olympics one day, you'll have rehearsed this in your head like a million times, and you won't be you know, so nervous. Um, so again, I, I, I think elite athletes, as you know, are always playing mind games with themselves to get the most out of each and every moment. Um,
0: of yeah, we're, we're all searching for triggers all the time.
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you saw the last dance with, uh, you know, the bulls and kind of, uh, you know, what, what the expressions there. I just love that. Cause Jordan, you know, oh, it's,
0: it's a fa- it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic set of programs.
1: If you could just ask athletes, like, what are the head games you, you intentionally play with yourself to find that motivation? It'd be, I think that'd be a fascinating.
0: I always, I always found driving back from a particular venue in London, you had to drive through, a you know, a, a, an interesting neighborhood. And I always deliberately drove through it. I went out of my way to drive through it after racing. And it was just a gentle reminder that if I didn't keep on winning, I might end up living there. And it was it always it you know often actually off the back of a of a of a good win only a few hours earlier I mean we we're all keeping
1: you humble
0: yeah no it, 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 exactly let me I want to pick up another theme here because I'm sort of we're sort of teasing it out as we go along and I've talked about you know the theme of, of beginnings when we talked about the genesis uh, of your career but I'd like to move on to another area uh, that you've also made a, a big impact in. You and I have something in common, although there's quite a lot of years in between that commonality. Um, I was the first member of the Athletes Commission at the International Olympic Committee. It was a sort of fledgling organisation that came out in you know, one of the congresses in 1981 when you know, the world started to think that athletes really needed to be able to have voice to some of the decisions. Uh, you went one stage further, of course, because you actually got elected uh, as chair uh, of, of the Athletes Commission. And um, by implication, that again puts you onto the executive board uh, of the International Olympic Committee. Was your passion, and it is a passion, and I've heard you speak about it both privately and publicly for the welfare of athletes and athletes having a role in that decision making process. I'm guessing that that was a theme for you that had been. Baked long before you took up the role at the International Olympic Committee, but it did help yeah. you in that role.
1: No, and uh, yes, I thank you for being a part of that first commission first. First of all, because you set the stage for I think you know for for me and for others to to help athletes to represent athletes. So uh, first, just want to say thank you. Um, it was an honor of a lifetime to be able to sit in that role and be the chair of of the IOC Athletes Commission. Um, and help you know guide our strategy. Um, you know, again, back to wanting to make the world a better place through sport and athletes, obviously having a pivotal role to play in that. Um, not having their voice per se in every organization. Um, I put my hand up in Vancouver to say if I could play that role and represent not just women's athletes, not just hockey players, not just Americans, but all athletes. I you know I would love to love to play that role and, and give back in a way. That was my final Olympic. So um it was uh, you know, the timing was great for me to to give back, to really immerse myself in athlete issues and and understand where they're coming from. Cause it's, you know, not certainly not a one size fits all um approach. And, you know, what I learned was just there's so much we can do to to help athletes that we need to do to help athletes is particularly on the career transition and what athletes do afterwards. Um, And, uh, you know, I just think the the Do you think think our
0: federations could be doing more in that transitional period?
1: 100%. Everyone should be doing more. The, the athletes, if you actually speak to them, we're so single focused, we're goal oriented and, and most people around us help us on that specific goal. They almost put blinders on us to be focused that it and sometimes hurts the athlete because you're not treating them as a holistic person who is going to mentally struggle when their identity is essentially removed from themselves. And they're, they don't know what they're good at. They haven't been maybe testing out their skills outside of sport uh, while they're competing. So yes, federations, hundred percent national Olympic committees, the IOC, the, the, the coaches in particular, coaches have so much influence. So a lot of the research we did, Um, If, if coaches are encouraging you to, as an athlete, to think about yourself, you know, post athletics versus you got to win this game, you know, where usually there's a conflict there, um, you know, in their heads, at least, you know, that that, everyone that can touch the athlete can do more Um, agents, you know, the, the broader entourage. So there's, I think we absolutely should be doing more for athletes. It's good that we're now aware of that. And there's at least a lot of programs and sponsors and people that are stepping up to the plate, but certainly this problem won't go away. And if anything, it's, I think with the advent of, again, social media and and the athlete's ability to go direct to consumer, I study that a lot now with my company, Sports Innovation Lab, athletes have a voice and they're going to continue to put it out there and be authentic if they need help or, or the struggles that they're having. So not that it's a new problem, but I think there's a more there's a platform now for them to express what maybe I heard or you heard more behind the scenes when we were you know, commission members.
0: Look, you've by no means only directed your uh, focus uh, on the progression and the, the development of women in sport. You've spoken right across the board, but nonetheless, you have become a huge advocate uh, for the progress um, of, of women, not, ju- not just on the field of play, uh, but something that I'm also passionate about, which is creating those pathways and those programs to encourage more women into the upper echelons uh, of all our sporting organisations. Um, I, I read a recent interview that you gave, uh, because you see, I, I did do a little bit of research before <laughs> <laughs> uh, before enticing you into the hot seat. And you do talk really passionately about the importance of women playing a bigger role in sport at every level. Uh, And you concluded with an interesting remark, and I I just want to sort of rest on this for a few moments. And I quote, it's slowly changing, but at least we are now getting some traction. You must have seen some massive changes in the last 10 years. I mean, your, your career was you know, if, the, if there's a litmus test for me in any career, it's about longevity. It's not a one-off performance. You've, you know, you did four Olympic Games, you're world champion, you've, you know, done so much. And, you know, over very nearly 16 years at, at the very highest level. But what I'm interested in here is the changes that you've seen socially and culturally uh, for women in, in sport generally over that 10-year period.
1: Yeah, I've seen, um, you know, if you start with just on the field of play, definitely an appetite to get more women opportunities. Um, So, you know, in Tokyo, we'll be almost at 50%. I know that's, that was a concerted effort of the IOC, IOC president to make that happen. Uh, And you need leaders at the top that care to make that happen. So I'm seeing, you know, on the field, Participation is definitely trending in the right direction. Is there enough male um,
0: advocacy out there?
1: No, absolutely not. There there's there are great men that care, but I, I what men say privately versus publicly, I think I would love to see more men that think it, that have the best intentions use some of their their credibility, their cachet, their their positioning, their fortunate positioning in the world to stand up Cause that's hard. That's a hard thing to do when it maybe isn't as popular or isn't as easy. Because my, my second point of some of these women are now asking for, you know, not just to participate, but like treat us equally. Maybe that's the, the, the class of travel. Maybe that's pay. Maybe that's the timing of when your event is. I mean, all of these different factors play into the success of, women's sports in general, um, you know, the, you know, I would love, by the way, your track and your world athletic, what if a woman finished the Olympics in marathon? What if we flopped men versus women? You know, and I talk about this in, in hockey. What if women's hockey could be the final event at the winter games when all eyes were on that, as opposed to there are little things that we don't even realize have happened that kind of perpetuate men having the advantage in sport relative to women. So there's little things, I think, on the field of pain. And then it comes back to your question about leadership. When we have more, not just women, because look, we, we all say this, <laughs> we all want it. Men are in the position of power right now. So having strong male advocates, I call them ambassadors. You're definitely a ambassador, by the way. I've heard you put your neck on a line and talk passionately about men and women having equal opportunity in the boardroom. And I, I will never forget that because it, I, I kind of took a step back. I'm like, wow, he really believes and cares. And I, can, I could feel it um, in some of the conversations we've had at the international level. So having more men like yourself that step up and say, look, we need to have more women on the board because as much empathy as you can have, it's nothing like being in the shoes of that person to really understand and then therefore affect change in policy. Um, and again, that's, that's across the board for all diversity and inclusion. Um, we just, I can try to understand athletics, but I never competed in athletics. It'd be hard for me to really have the same effect. So, um, uh, yes, I, am a huge advocate as you can hear. Um, and again, it goes back to like, well, why? Because if, if sport is a human right, we should, as a global federation, the IOC, a National Olympic Committee, try to make sure all boys and girls have equal access to that right. Because it changes their lives, it really does. And it changed your life, it changed my life. And, uh, uh, and women are a big piece of that, that, that puzzle.
0: But I, I think, and I, I'm interested in your view here, the, I, I think the landscape now, particularly as we go into the post-pandemic world uh, and particularly around making sure you know, that those communities that have been hit hardest. You know, we went into the pandemic coming out with pretty much the same line. I probably used it myself that it was the great leveller. This isn't the great leveller. It hasn't been the great leveller. It's hit communities that have been least able to protect themselves, uh, whether educationally, aspirationally, whether it's poor housing or, or job opportunities. Um And the one thing we know that we can have an effect on through sport, I guess, is boosting immune systems through exercise and providing that accessibility, so my instinct is that this is probably the best environment that sport has had in many generations to make that case directly to our political leaders that sport actually can help us in a really constructive way come out of this and into you know a, a few more of the sunlit uplands uh, by the way, as a good athlete, note to self, I have made a note about the women's marathon. Thank you for <laughs> getting me to, to think about that. Look, if, if we're sitting here in 10 years time, I don't know, you know, extraordinary tales in extraordinary times, the sequel or, or the revenge. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to be interviewing you. What would you like to see the progress that we've just talked about, particularly I- I- in women's sport? Uh, what would you like to be reporting back and and witnessing with pleasure over the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I could just start with uh, what I'm doing now. Um, I started a company about four years ago called Sports Innovation Lab. And we look at technology. We look at what basically the best possible fan experience. How does technology drive that? Um, So we sit in the middle of the market listening to brands and properties and agencies and investors and and really understanding what's cutting edge in terms of technology and it's been fascinating to sit in that and service this industry from that lens because the way that we've done business isn't should especially with the pandemic isn't how we should be doing business going forward as an industry and technology is driving all kinds of change from venues to media, to how sponsors and brands deliver value, to how the athletes train themselves. So in my head, I I just, I love that, you know, I love those properties leaning in and doing things differently, those federations that are thinking about how do we reinvent, particularly now reinvent ourselves. Um, And there's a lot of change and innovation happening suddenly, which is great, but we've been studying this. So my point is, in 10 years, I would love to build, again, you can hear my passion for women in sport. What if, what if we were to take all these learnings and build something that looks very different than the current model that we have in sport today for women? Um, you know, I, again, I know it's, it's maybe I've always wanted to go back into the property side, um, but I love learning about innovation and thinking about new ways of doing business and really using technology to level the playing field. You just talked about it. Um, if you can do things differently, you're not beholden to the same model, which again is disruption. Um, why not take all those learnings and you know experience that I'm and people that I'm meeting, apply that to uh, something that looks very different but can have a positive effect at a at an economic level? And I think that's the key point. It isn't just when everyone says it's the right thing to do. Well, of course it's the right thing to do, but you know, put that aside. It's there's a viable Market out there that's, I think, totally untapped. And there's, and again, you need the same kinds of investment and thinking and long term strategic planning that, you know, you would launch any league with any property. So I don't know what it looks like yet, honestly, but I'm, but I just I keep thinking about if I could build something from scratch, what would it look like based on everything I'm learning uh, today? And of course, if it could be in women's sports, even better. <laughs> well,
0: what are, I'm interested, because, you know, we're all running or, or you know, got leadership roles in, in these types of organizations. I think, you know, certainly from World Athletics are things that we just simply won't be doing again. You know, I'm not going to sign off eight people flying eight time zones to give a report for yeah. you know, a couple of hours and then to <laughs> you. get back, you know, you, which, you know, you and I have done that. And we now have the kind of technology that's bringing bringing us both together today. What are the things in your in the hot seat as CEO uh, of the of the lab? Have you looked at and gone, yeah, we just we won't be doing that in future.
1: Uh, well, just my company's perspective, we're we're remote now. We're, we gave up our office space, so we're you know we're a total remote workforce um, from a from Maybe, an maybe you pers- don't
0: want to go back into property. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I honestly, I'm tra- I don't know if you knew I had a baby in yeah, uh, I February. Do. I do. So the fact that I get to be home and not, you know, the the hundreds of days on the road, as you and I both know, are part of, you know, what you sign up for uh, when you're doing global sport. Um, so so working from home, be more efficient with your time, uh, having more time with your family, more time for your health. Um, you know, I, I love that. I think, again, what are the positives we can take from this? um how do we i think overall operational efficiency from just any business perspective um sport i think if you're talking about sport now we still want people to go to the venues obviously like we we love that feeling of togetherness um but i do think there's a large percentage of the sports industry for fans in particular who are going to want to watch from home um and uh you know maybe they'll never go back or maybe they'll go back but not as frequently so the fan experience at home is something I'm really excited to see all the innovation happening. Um, so it's not just in linear, you're actually getting to use your second screen or have co-watching or do things that, again, you couldn't, we weren't, we were seeing bits of investment, but not the focus and the demand. And there's a ton of demand now to like make sports better at home. And think about the Olympics so 99.9% never go to the venue anyway. Um, so what we what if from a company perspective operational efficiency absolutely but from like an industry perspective um that that experience at home and being close to the athlete closer to the sport i think will be enhanced because of of this pandemic
0: 2020 for most of us is a, a year of of great disruption um uh, particularly for the athletes i you know as chair of the London Organising Committee, I I can only imagine what I would have felt if somebody walked into my office in uh, 2012 in March and said, oh, by the way... By the way,
1: you did such a good job. That was definitely... I'd never been to a summer games before because I was playing hockey. I just competed in the winter side, And that was my first summer Olympics attending. And it just blew my mind. So amazing job well, there. Uh, well, that,
0: that that's very <laughs> sweet of you. And I wish you you know I wish you'd been to more uh, summer games I'm sure you will do in future but uh, the point I was going to make is you know I just can't imagine what I would have been feeling had somebody sort of knocked on my door walked in and said oh by the way um, you're not going July uh, 2012 you're going July 2013 and and, you know parking the pandemic for a moment that's that's yeah. been the great disruptor to the yeah. ecosystem, to the, morale, to the you know, morale of our competitors. But there has been a darker moment, I think, this year. And that was the appalling scenes that we all witnessed and sparked the impassioned um, anti-racism movement uh, off, the, off the back of the, the George Floyd uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Sport can and should, I guess, you would say, play a significant role in in all the big moral hotspots. Whether it's the global hotspots, whether it's racism, whether it's um, gender equality, the LGBTQ co- community, uh, and what what role do you see sport playing in future? Is it an even more marked one? And is it going to produce some some sort of authoritarian clashes with our federations and with the structures out there
1: yeah i think uh you know sport is a reflection of society and uh and at times you know whether you just look at it for its face value and say you know kind of this is where we are in terms of uh our progress but Here in the U.S. with George Floyd and and kind of the social unheaval that's created, um, it's definitely sparked a change, I think, in how the leagues here in the U.S. at least are approaching um, societal issues. And for the first time, you're, you know, allowing players to literally have patches on their jersey and talk and have a platform to talk about what they care about. And that's in direct conflict with Rule 50, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, at the Olympic level. Uh, so I think there's gonna be a massive clash and a hard conversation that's already happening, I know, on the IOC Athletes Commission, but in global sport in general, and how do you how do you deal with this? In, if sport's supposed to be apolitical, again, at the global level, um, yet it's 100% political, and athletes increasingly want to be authentic, want to have a voice, and don't need permission any longer. They have their social platforms to go direct to fans, direct to consumer. Absolutely. I think this will increasingly be a hot topic that we have to work through. Um, but, you know, you're not I don't think you're going to be able to go back to the way it was where athletes don't feel like they can't express their views um, for fear of punishment, because in some ways the market's rewarding them <clears throat> by the most authentic athletes that are speaking out for LGBT rights, social justice, the environment, pick, pick their cause, um, pick what they believe in, are, are better aligning now with brands. And that, again, is, is, is moving the needle for those brands who, and look at athletes, they have exponentially more followers on social than any property, than any federation, than any. So I think, again, athletes are getting more power, relatively speaking, more voice, Um, They've always had an opinion, but now they're vocalizing that opinion and they have a way to do it more effectively. Um, So I think back to your point of, of, okay, if we're going to go to a a, a country that the world disagrees with or we're going to align with something that's um, there's a clash in one way, shape or form, it's just going to come to head more in sports and uh, be more of a hot topic. But in some ways, maybe a force for good. Um, to shine a light on the things that we should be doing but maybe we've overlooked as a society so I'm an advocate for it I mean I just think athletes sometimes it's about sport and you want to use your platform to win in sport and sometimes athletes want to use their voice to change something else about the world and uh I don't know. Good luck. You're, you're you're leading this now in some ways, uh, you know, with 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 world athletics and your membership now in the IOC. It's it's going to be a really tricky topic, I think, for all the leaders out there.
0: Well, I've already uh, I, I, I've already been very open that I'm entirely happy for an athlete to take a knee uh, at an Olympic Games and and even on the podium as long as he's done with with full respect for uh, uh, other other competitors. But what I'm interested about here is you've confronted many of these challenges, the very nature of your career, the longevity of your career, the the the, the, the socio-cultural process that you've also been through. What is the advice you would give to young competitors um, that you would have given to yourself 10 or 15 years ago? Because they're now going to be in a more complicated landscape than they've probably ever been in. And I think, sports federations, if they're smart, will recognize that athletes displaying, you know, authentic observations and traits and reflective of the world they live in is actually good for their sport too.
1: Yeah. And I would, rather than just point it at the athlete, I would point it at the organization. I'm a huge advocate for the pie can be bigger for everyone if we work together. Athletes are, are an asset at the end of the day, if you want to look at it from that perspective. Athletes uh, we talk about athlete data a lot who owns the data and there's always a conflict there again we, with Sports Innovation Lab we, we we talk about these big themes well what if you shared it what if there was some mutually beneficial agreement that you shared your heart rate just as an example and there was there's a market out there for it and the athlete made more money but so did the federation or the property same thing with, with again what we're talking about here um, athletes have a voice you can't put a muzzle on them anymore. They they, they they want to be authentic. That's this new generation. Um, and how do you align with them, I think, at the end of the day versus trying to put a box around them and create really restrictive rules? Um, how do you do it in such a way that's authentic? But again, grows the pie for everyone. That's the direction I would love to see because you can't go back in the past. You could look into the future and recognize that if athletes are gaining power and voice, and platform, it's better to be aligned with them and support them if some of that comes back to the organization. So, um, yes, athletes that don't see that or feel like there's a conflict, well, I think increasingly, you know, me 10 years ago, I would have been frustrated. I was frustrated. I, you know, we stood up against our national governing body when we felt we weren't being treated equally. I would have rather been in a situation where we, co-authored, well, what to do next, how to, how to move forward. Um, So maybe that's the middle child in me and uh, (laughs) the the mediator. I, you know, but I just feel like the.
0: See, there we go. We're back. We're going back to families again.
1: Family. Yeah. I was middle child. So, you know, I want everyone to get along in the middle of the, you know, I played team sport, but, um, but I do think we, the market will grow. Athletes will continue to have a voice and they know they can actually have an impact. I think that's the biggest thing. They know that using their voice can materially change people's lives. And and when you get above, like, I'm just putting a ball in a hoop or putting a puck in a net, those athletes see that, they go, they do that mental juggling. They're like, well, why not use my position to affect change in this area that I care about? That's not going to go away. And you can't ask an athlete to, to put that somewhere.
0: Uh, listen, uh, Angela, sadly, I'm trespassed into more time than I really should have have demanded of you um we all have a bucket list I'm for the life of me trying to figure out what's left (laughs) on, on your bucket list because you've done and achieved so much is there
1: anything bucket list um I mean I think I sort of told you this vision to like build build some new new way of doing sport um Cause I, you know, I started a company from scratch It's a startup And the great thing about a startup Is you can build it however you want But building something that looks very different Has effect and proves out the economic viability Of, of women in sport Is is certainly something in my in the back of my head um, But I would love to just, you know I don't know, bucket list But now that I'm in the business side uh, of, of sport um, You know, just I don't know, have a positive effect there. Change the industry in some way that is, you know, leave my mark in a way that, again, leaves the business of sports better than just on the eye. That was always what I, I always tried to help young girls and help my sport. And now that I'm in kind of the global business, uh, how do I help that? I don't know if that's a bucket list. I've already jumped out of a plane. I can't really... uh, You have to come back to me on that. I got to think about what I, what I, oh, I need to, I need, there are warm weather places that I never got to travel because I was playing hockey. So I have a lot of traveling where I'm not going into a conference room uh, on my bucket list. Well, well, sadly, with
0: global warming, you're probably not going to be sport for choice in the next 10 years when we meet up for the, for, for round two of the (laughs) podcast. Thank you very much for shedding a little bit of light on actually who you really are in the podcast it's been a delight thank you so much
1: thank you, appreciate you having so appreciate you
0: and see you soon you've been listening to extraordinary tales in extraordinary times brought to you by csm